I'm going to read from the book of James, chapter 3. Taming the tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by, by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Two kinds of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. God. Thanks, Jill. Not many of you can hear me. Is this, is this going to work? Not many of you should become teachers because you will be judged with greater strictness. The dream opening line for me this morning. So let's change the subject quickly. Should I change the microphone quickly as well? Yeah? All right.
Britney Spears and the Donna thing as well. With pleasure. There we go. Is that going to work? Hello. So, um, as I was saying, let's change the subject. And I've got a quick question for you. Would you rather see yourself as a drummer? You know, sort of like imagining some parallel life, some like dream existence. Would you, would you pick for yourself to be a drummer or a painter or a ski jumper? Those are your three options. This is actually one of these um, subtle personality tests. And the results are something along the lines of whether you're a bit loud, a bit quiet, or a bit stark raving mad. <laughs> we'll come back to that. But this, my friends, is a TV remote control. It works. How? By sending out pulses of infrared light, just like this. And at the touch of a button from across the room, you can control 500-odd channels from the comfort of your sofa. Um, we didn't always have these. Some of you will remember. 25 years ago, I can remember having to press the button on the front of the TV. Thankfully, we only had four channels. Then we had five. Why do we need another TV channel, they were saying. I think I was about seven, eight at the time. Um, but I remember it. Imagine now if a similar technology going 25 years into the future was developed for the human brain. And sort of from across the room, you could implant ideas into people's um, brains remotely. You could cause specific ideas to occur to other people just like that whenever you wanted. If you had one of these, you could literally rewire other people's minds. You could alter the settings inside their brains to suit your purposes. Well, that day has arrived. In fact, you are all in possession of this particular neuro audio, neural audio technology. It is, of course, language, this incredibly powerful thing that we, we possess. Just watching our baby Nia come to terms with the beginnings of this superpower as she, with, the, with these, these noises that come out of her mouth, can command these giants to move across the room towards her. It is amazing. It's the subversive significance um, and potential of language has long been recognized with all forms of censorship. There's books you can't read. There's um, particular words you can't use, sentences that you can't say. The fact of the matter is I could probably get myself arrested in the next 30 minutes just by using some particular words. Just nothing more than the puffs of air coming out of my mouth. In some context, you could get yourself killed. And that's because there's always so much more going on with our, our language and our words. It is amazing. It is powerful. It is significant. So that's why James devotes you know, a, a massive chunk, really, of his short little letter to what we do with this superpower of language. In, right at the, so the first chapter of James, as we noted, gives a sort of heads up as to a lot of the things he's going to develop later on. And so in 126, he first comes to this topic and he says, look, seriously, 
if you're into all of this worshipping God stuff, this is my paraphrase, if you're into all of this worshipping God stuff, but you never pay any attention to how you talk, then you're kidding yourself. It matters how we talk. And at the beginning of the chapter 3, he seems to be at pains to kind of get people to open their eyes to the significance of what's coming out of their mouths. He talks about the tiny bits that go into horses to steer the whole body, or the little rudders that that manage to steer a, a, a big ship. He pretty much quotes the stereophonics at one point. I didn't know if you noticed that, talking about just taking one match to burn down a thousand trees, something like that. Because the tongue is a fire, he says. It is a superpower. It matters what we do with it. And the danger of a talk like this, for me, in a sort of you know, Sunday morning attention span, that level of danger I'm talking about, um, is that it, when you start laying down the rules and the guidelines of, of how, you know, do not lie, do not use flattery, do not boast, all of this sort of stuff, is, it comes across a bit preachy, a bit moralistic, and that's a bit dull, and people start switching off, yet there goes the preacher again. To be honest, it's so much more fun preaching grace and just standing up here. I love it when it gets to that bit in the talk on a Sunday morning when I get to stand here and I get to like announce the wonderful, surprising, startling news that we are loved. Even you. This, this scandalous forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ and we get to sort of just announce that over us again and it's just magic and it changes us. And that's the point. That this is the sort of free gift of grace that as we receive it, as we take hold of it, it changes us. It has implications. It comes with this invitation, this vocation, even this calling to be different, to change, to, to become something of God's beautiful difference in this world. And so that's where the guidelines and the rules should come into play, not before the grace stuff. It's not about trying to please God by being a good person. It's not even just about trying to make the right response to the grace of God. And it's not just because actually keeping the the rules, the guidelines, that's because that's how life works better. In actual fact, many of the, the differences that God calls into, calls us into, causes life to become quite a bit more difficult. The deeper thrust behind um, the rules, the guidelines, the, the calling into being this beautiful difference is it's about learning to be who we really are. James has this idea that recurs in the, the text about wholeness or integrity or congruence. You could, you could use that word. Single-mindedness. He says, beware the, the, the double-minded, the split-souled, unstable in, in, in all that they do. That was his, his line in the first chapter. He's calling us into a, a life of integrity, wholeness, congruence, a life that's lived into the deepest truth of things. And when it comes to the rules, though, these, these guidelines on how we're supposed to live, these, the church is teaching on, on how we are to walk into this new identity in accordance with it. There's a couple of ways that we can get it wrong. The first is that we fall in love with the rules and we... Um, 
I don't know why I'm talking to you over here, but we'll go with you're the people who fall in love with the rules, right? And, and you, you, you're, you, you've, yeah, great, on board. I'm going to follow Jesus with everything I've got. What does it mean for this area of my life, this area of my life, this area of my life? Okay, I'm going to pay careful, diligent, dutiful attention to all of these. In fact, I'm going to make some extra advanced level ones for me just so that I am unholy. And then all of that focus on the rules, if we're not careful, can become this, it turns into a kind of, show of being ticking all these boxes and the heart behind it can sort of drain out the other way we can get it wrong and that's you guys this year the free spirits you're like no 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 i I reject all of the deliberate um you know uh slightly too serious kind of approach to um this life of discipleship i'm going to live a more authentic life you know i'm going to go with what feels right without attention to some of that teaching, that guidelines, those, those rules. But the truth is, that doesn't often get us to very brilliant places either. The truth is somewhere between the two. And so we come back to skiing, ski jumping, drumming, and what was the other one? Painting. Who was a drummer? Good choice. I was a drummer. I, I grew up spending my Saturday morning when between the when I was in year seven, eight, and nine, I used to go um, to this into the centre of Cardiff, up to this little room, and and choose. To, I could have been out playing football, but I chose to spend my Saturday morning with two little drumsticks and a little rubber practice pad. And there were loads of us there, and we'd do our little, you know, practice drumming rudiments. They're called your rudiments, and um, fairly dull. Just these little exercises. And then you, you go on to like doing grade exams in, in drums, and you can learn all these pieces by rote. And the truth of the matter is, you could, you could pass, you could probably pass all of those grade exams and miss the point of drumming, which I would argue is the groove. It's all about the groove. Like a, a mature drummer um, can sit in the groove. You know, so you could be like technically brilliant. You could have kept all of the rudiments. You could have got excellent at the, the rules. You could have even passed all of your grade exams, but not really be a drummer. Because the drummer's job is to lay down the groove for the rest of the band to latch onto and bring their part. And if the drummer's not in this sort of relaxed, confidence, stylish, just, just on it, then I think they're fake. They're missing the point. What about the painting? And if you do painting by numbers? Painting by numbers arguably has some value in you know, just get, introducing you to a brush and some paint. And maybe even further than that, maybe you might be surprised. Like, Why is there a number 42 up on the corner of that red shiny balloon? 42 is white, isn't it? Why is white on a red balloon? And then you put it on following the rules and you come to see like, oh no, that's the, the kind of reflection of the window on the, the shiny balloon. And it, maybe it, that way it can teach you to become a painter. But it is not about painting by numbers. That is not making art. Hopefully that is a launch pad that propels you into a more artistic sort of career activity. Um, and what about the ski jumping? I bet those of you who are the ski jumpers, I bet you guys didn't put your hands up because you were thinking, yes, I really want to spend hours and hours in the gym. 
doing some variations on explosive squat jumps that presumably that's what they do. That is not the point. You know, that's important and you couldn't do it without that. But the, what, you were, what you were sticking your hand up for was the flying through the air with a particular style. That's the point. It's not about the rudiments or the numbers or the training regime. It's about the groove. It's about making art. It's about flying. And here's the thing. The grace of God gives us this new identity. And now it's about learning to walk in it. Grace says you are in the band. You actually are in the band. Come on. Now let's get, let's get with the groove. The grace of God says here's the brushes, the canvas, the studio. Actually, more than that, here is a space reserved for you in the National Portrait Gallery waiting. Now, come on, let's make something beautiful. The grace of God says, and this is the bit you've been waiting to hear, you are on the Olympic team. <laughs> there is a room in the Olympic Village with your name on it, and inside that room there is a tracksuit, GB tracksuit, with your initials right there, and the helmet is there. Now, come on, let's go flying. Grace says you are a child of God, fully adopted into the family. And so come on, now let's learn to walk in this identity, with this noble vocation to reflect something of God in this world, his rhythm, his beauty, his soaring through the air flying. Why wouldn't you want some of that wholeness for your life? Christian ethics, morality, all of that stuff, it's all about learning to be who we are. And so when it comes to thinking about how we should be using the superpower of our language, it's about learning to speak, learning to talk like who we really are, like a child of God. And there's a psalm, Psalm 12, it's got this verse in it that gives us a beautiful picture, the hinting of what the Father sounds like. And it says this, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. This number seven is a picture of perfection, and so the idea here is the sort of speech that is utterly weighty, utterly valuable, utterly true. And yet how many are the ways you can imagine that we debase our own language. Those called to be reflecting the image of God. Those restored into that vocation and yet we debase our language in so many ways. Cheap words that we throw around, loveless words that we carelessly use, sentences that perhaps function to build up brick walls, sentences that we hide behind, designed to conceal something, destructive words. When it comes to learning the particularities, the peculiarities of our family dialect, how are you doing? How are you doing at learning to speak like who we really are? Now, two props for you today. I have here a pile of folders. I was hoping for a much bigger pile then I was going to split them into two. And each of these, imagine, has got a different name on it. 
and it's a transcript of your day from yesterday. And like proper, you know, East German um, uh, before the fall of the wall stuff, um, where all of the words that you spoke just yesterday were put into this little script. And I had a whole stack of them. And the girls' pile would come up to here, and the guys' pile would probably be down there. <laughs> but we'd hand them all out. And, the, um, and what if there was a problem as I was handing them all out? And I got some of the names had got mixed up, and you got someone else's, and someone else got yours. The horror. What would they think? Maybe they didn't even know you, didn't recognize the name. Or it was like ink mark, marked out so you couldn't see it. And they, but they were just reading these, your words for the day. What would they think of you? Would they like you? Would they respect you? Would they trust you? After what they, would they see some double minded, split souled? kind of stuff going on. Are you funny? And this exercise, so I, oh, James, when we go through the, what James has got to say, I want you to imagine you've got your transcript, not somebody else's, your transcript in front of you. And so as we go, as we examine what James is saying, the invitation is for you to examine your own speech, your own talking, the context in which you find yourselves opening your mouth, how are you doing at learning the family dialect, the wholeness that, that James is calling us into. Just before the first one of those, though, let me tell you about the most fascinating piece of research that I've come across in a while. It was the University of Washington, and they've got babies who were, I think, um, six months old at the beginning. And they sat them on their parents' lap, and they devised this experiment to try and work out um, how babies learn language. And they would play to them these different sounds, like ah, uh, e. And when the sound changed, the, they were sort of training the babies to turn their heads, and if, to recognize the sound, to turn their heads. And if they got it right, then this box lit up, and it had a toy inside it, and they just loved that um, every time. At six months old, babies from wherever all around the world, all different languages, cultures, perform about the same, regardless of what the sounds being played to them are. And then just three months later, as the, the, you know, the native tongue is, is heard more, as their parents are speaking to them in, let's say, English, their ability to, dis to distinguish between the important sounds within English goes up. At the same time, the, the, the kid's ability to distinguish between, it, you know, it was about this good at, um, at distinguishing between, say, the sounds in Chinese, the same as the Chinese six-month-old baby. But by the time they're 10 months, 11 months, the ability has gone down as the English has gone up, and vice versa. Fascinating. They then brought in somebody to um, read to them in the foreign language. I think it was just an hour a week. So the English kids had the Chinese person come in and read a story in Chinese to them for an hour once a week. That, was, that enculturation was enough to, when they repeated the test, to make the English baby perform as well on the Chinese sounds as the Chinese babies. That's amazing, isn't it? And they also repeated the, the um, they tried it with just audio of the Chinese, and, and they did it via a screen as well, with a person reading a book on a, on a TV monitor. The results of those 
are very interesting as well, and I'll come to those in a minute. But for now, the, the lesson, the, the point I'm trying to make, the parallel, the analogy is that um, with our words, we, we literally open up worlds of meaning and, and, and language and possibility for people. Equally, we can shut them down as well. I thought Ree's encouragement was, was spot on to us to be these people who, with our words, take care to flourish those around us and encourage people into life and into love. Carefully aware as well that our words can have the opposite effect and can crush, destroy, cause things to derail. Anyway, James says the tongue is a fire. He goes on to say in verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, with our tongues we bless the Lord and Father and then we curse those that are made in the image of God. I mean, that speaks for itself. That's about as stark as you get. We're sort of saying, God, we think you're so wonderful and here's your child. How can this be so? It doesn't get more stark than that. That's hallmark number one of the peculiar family dialect. This is how we talk. Actually, we don't talk others down into the ground. There's something so obviously split-souled about this. It's the opposite of the wholeness and the congruence that James is calling us into, that he's shooting for. Um, And do you see how it connects, if you were here last week, with with chapter 2 and the favoritism stuff? And that, and that was essentially, the, the Jesus way is this complete rejection of every system of, of ranking people, every effort that we spend to try and get ahead. Actually, it's, it's turning our back on all of that stuff. And so we're giving lip service to Jesus, but then using our, those same lips to kick others to the floor to drag them down, those others that are made in the image of God. How is your transcript going on that one? How many people would you need to hide that printout? When you took it home on you know, lunchtime, how many people would you need to make sure didn't see that because of what you said about them? Someone in my life who's really good on this, a real lesson to me, is Philippa, who, I don't know if she's here, sorry if you are embarrassing, um, who works in the office with us. And, and the thing, the truth is with Philippa that I, I have not once thought or worried about what might she be saying about me behind my back. Why? Because I've never heard her say, speak poorly, um, say a bad word about other people behind their backs to me. And that's something. She's got it. So as the family of God... A peculiarity of our family dialect should be that we don't talk bad about people. And if we do have a complaint against someone, what do we do? The Bible's pretty clear on it. We go directly to them and we have a chat about it. And if that isn't fruitful, then we go back with someone else who can help us have a chat with them about it. How are you doing on that? Is that how you roll? It's about learning to speak and react and be like who we really are. Number two, we don't talk ourselves up. We don't talk others down. We don't talk ourselves up. 
James, in verse 14, he goes, to, goes on to link our selfish ambition with a tendency to boast and be false in the truth. And again, that, I think that happens when we're, we're buying in to the ranking game. Again, when we're trying to get ahead or maintain shiny appearances to get people to like us. And our stories, they get better and they get better with each telling of them. And when we're in that context, we have to be the one who's got the best story. Or what about being false to the truth? Do you ever spend time having to get your story straight in your head? Do you ever have to remember which version of it you gave to that person? Or um, which explanation did I, did I give? It takes a lot of concentration to keep up appearances like that. And the way of wholeness and integrity is free from that. Or what about the other ways we might use our words to get ahead ourselves? Flattery, flattering ourselves to the top, to where we need to go. Using our skill with words to control others or to manipulate the situation as to how we want it to be. Those of you who are capable with words, more brilliant than others in conversation, actually that comes with a great responsibility as to how you're using your superpower. It's not about getting ahead. Actually, it's about serving. It's about helping people find their voice as well in those situations. We don't talk others down. We don't big ourselves up. We don't have to spin the facts. Why? Because it's not about winning. We're all in this together. So let's speak tenderly with one another. Number three, the truth of the matter is everyone's got stuff, big stuff going on. We're all a right pick and mix of issues and dreams and fears insecurities, we've got these interior compulsions that are driving us in ways that we don't fully understand. And so a kindness and a generosity and giving each other the benefit of the doubt are, I think, pretty decent guides for how we are to talk with one another, how we are to be with one another. James talks about being willing to yield at the end of chapter three. So not, that means not jumping to your feet straight away in this reactive argument, the first instance that you think you might have been wronged by someone and you're taking offense, actually, we're to be full of mercy. He's got this beautiful phrase for it. Um, in, in, my trans- in the NRSV, it said, the gentleness that's born of wisdom, or the humility that's, that's born of wisdom. Verse 13. Okay, the number four, we are to brave honesty. In chapter five, James carries on his his concern with, with the sort of stuff that's coming out of our mouth. And this is, the, is, this is the big corrective to all of those temptations we find to play the ranking game and to try to push ourselves ahead and push other people down. The big corrective in verse 16 of chapter 5 is as James encourages us to confess our sins to one another that we might be healed from all that stuff. That sort of confession might be the purest form of speech that is available to us. I'm not talking about the sort of confession that leaves you, you know, in a slightly better light relative to those other people who've done something worse. I'm talking about the sort of confession that is, that is actually personally devastating to your pride and your pretensions. Those unfiltered moments that bravely reveal our deepest and our darkest shadows to trusted friends. I talked about this a bit before Christmas. 
about the just the immense value, essential value really, of finding a context in which you can let it all hang out and in an unglamorous sort of way. Have you found that yet? Go for it. Get with the, the confession thing. We often start with a confession at the start. That's helpful, the sort of corporate confession before God. It's helpful, that's true. It's not what James is calling us to. It's like, come on, level two. Have you got the confession going in your life? Over the, the two-month transcript, would there be any points in it of that devastating confession? It's difficult, it's awkward, I know, but it's so worth it. Finally, number five. We don't need layers of verbal commitments. We become the sorts... The sort of people who, like the speech of the Lord, our speech carries with it this, this weight. And so in verse 12, chapter 5, James is again echoing Jesus. And he says this, he says, Do not swear by heaven or earth or under any other oath, but just let your yes be yes and your no be no. We don't need layers of commitment. We don't need to say things like, yeah, 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 I swear it on my mother's life. No, no, this time I promise. We don't have to override a career of cheap words and self-serving or people-pleasing empty sentences with various forms of oath. Cross my heart and hope to die, that sort of stuff. The Jesus way is when you become the sort of person that your plain yes actually means yes. And the people around you have come to kind of go with that. Your plain no means no. There's a, a reliability, a depth, a truth to your talking. And if any of this sounds a bit boring, a bit kind of dull, a bit kind of overriding of the fun and the personality of life, then I have failed in my job this morning. I firmly believe that laughter is holy, that causing people to laugh is a ministry in itself. Um, but it matters. The contents, the, the speak, all of it matters. Your life profoundly matters. There's this weight to your existence for us to walk into. It's about becoming who you are. You child of God, you. Shall we stand? One last word. The, um, back to that experiment with the babies sat on the laps, learning to distinguish between the different sounds. And I said that they used the, um, the video and the, the audio to see if that helped the, the kids become acquainted with the second language, as well as the person reading in front of them with the book. The result were, results were that the audio had no effect. The screen had no effect either. It seemed that, like the, that it was dependent on the presence of the person there with them. Some, some social part of the brain had to be engaged for the exposure to the second language to have any effect, which destroys my overly intense plans to make Carison Morgan watch French cartoons. Um, but the point is that, that, the, that we need to learn how to speak properly. Actually, we're dependent on 
spending time with the presence of God. To, we need his help. All of this developing character stuff, it's not about striking out on your own. Actually, it's about lifting up the sails and saying, God, come on then, help me. I want to shoot into this wholeness, this integrity that you've, you, you've got for us. I want to, in meaningful ways, use my little life to anticipate some of your healing and wholeness in my context. And so we're going to pray that God helps us speak better. Come, Spirit of God, and speak to us. Come and speak afresh words of grace to those of us who really need to hear those words this morning. Come speak to us of the truth of things. Come and let the ranking system fall away. And come and fill up our hearts with your great love, that our words might be freighted with love. Come and speak to us. Maybe you could ask, ask God to bring to mind for you one person that you need to encourage. One idea of how you might use your words to change their world. Maybe ask God to give you one thing to bring, to bring up one thing that actually needs to be confessed, to, to, to talk with someone about. And Lord, we ask that you lead us into the right context in which to do that. Lead us into freedom, into healing. Maybe there's, there's one context in which you need to change how you're talking. Maybe that's the staff room or even your small group or your social media postings. Show us where our words are cheap, we pray.
help us to talk a bit more like you with words of creativity and life and care and love.